0: Chapter 6 of Treve by Albert Payson Terhune. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by J. Schmidt. Chapter 6 Deserted. A day earlier, Joel Finno had been happily, if always grouchily, the master of his own actions. Today, Joel Finno sat huddled miserably in a police station cell at La Serra a hundred miles from home. The man did not know how long he crouched there in growing mental torment on the hard cell bench. It seemed to him a handful of centuries in duration. Actually, it was something under an hour. Then a policeman came to lead him to the captain's room at the front of the station. Besides the captain, two other men were in the room, One of them was jolly and elderly. The captain treated him with grudging respect and addressed him as judge. The other was a lazy-looking chap, much younger, with a shock of red hair and a snub nose. The awesome police captain, apparently, was on comradely terms with him. As Joel shuffled miserably into the private room, it was this red-headed youth who greeted him. "'Well, old-timer,' he said breezily, "'it sure was one grand and wakeful little scrap while it lasted. "'I was in the gallery looking at the chowls benched up there, "'and I got a fine view of it, "'but I couldn't work my way through the crowd "'till after you'd been gathered in. "'I thought they'd just turned you out of the place "'till one of the bulls told me a few minutes ago "'that he'd cooped you. "'Then I hustled for Judge Broff and came here on the run.' He talked fast and with easy good fellowship, undeterred by Fenno's sour glare. Scarcely had he paused for breath when Joel, ignoring him, turned to the uniformed captain in trembly, eager appeal. "'Mister,' he pleaded, "'my dog got left alone there at that show. He's liable to starve or get lost or stole or hurt without me to watch out for him. I—' I'm kind of, kind of fond of him, he mumbled shamefacedly, adding in a more normal tone. I've got forty-one dollars in my pocket here. It's yourn if you'll see he's looked out for and shipped back to the ranch while I'm serving my term. If that ain't enough, I'll write a check for... You'll come around to court with me, interposed Judge Broff and write out a check for five dollars for your fine. Then you can go and look after your own dog. I'm holding special court for your benefit, my man, because this nosy reporter friend of mine is pestering me too. Come along, my car's outside. I, I don't, I don't just rightly understand." sputtered Fenno, incredulous, as ever that any such golden good luck could sift into his morbid life lot. I, Gladden here, was in the gallery, explained the judge, just as he told you. He saw it all. He gives me his word that you didn't tackle Mr. Colt till Colt kicked your collie. Of course, that doesn't excuse you for breaking the law, but... Well, I'm glad it was your collie and not mine that was kicked. I'm getting too old to punch my fellow man. Come along. In a trance, Joel Finno trailed to the car in the wake of Broff and Gladden. In a trance, he answered the judge's few official questions in Broff's chambers back of the deserted courtroom. He paid his fine and then asked uncertainly, "'Can I go now?' "'At Broth's assenting nod, "'the old man set forth at a shambling run. "'Too long Treve had been left there, "'lonely and unhappy among that mob of strange dogs "'and stranger men, "'and possibly at the mercy of Fraser Colt. "'He must get back to the collie "'as fast as a lanky pair of legs could carry him. "'Hold on!' called the reporter, hurrying after him. Judge Broff says I can take you back to the show in his car. It's a couple of miles from here. Jump in. Gladden had been sent to the dog show by his paper, the Clarion, in quest of human interest items that might brighten up the technical account of the exhibition. He was not minded to let slip this chance of getting more material for the most worthwhile human interest item the day thus far had produced, wherefore he stuck to the excited oldster. During the drive to the armory, he fired adroit questions at the taciturn and worried Finno, most of which the old man did not trouble to answer. But from a word or two forced from Joel's overburdened soul, the lad gathered something of Finna's dread lest harm had befallen Treve through Colt's ill will. "'You can go to sleep over that, brother,' Gladden reassured him. "'You and Treve, between you, managed to make friend Colt one hundred percent eligible for first aid treatment. Before I left,' He had been helped across to the hotel, and a doctor had been sent for. By the time Doc gets through stitching and bandaging him, Colt will be glad enough to stay in bed for the rest of the day, and probably tomorrow, too. He's in no shape to carry on a canine vendetta just now. Sleep easy. Joel sighed in deep relief and turned upon his companion a look that, in a less forbidding old face— would have been classified as one of gratitude. You've been mighty decent to me, young feller, he muttered grudgingly, as though the effort at graciousness were physically painful. And I'm thanking you. Let it go at that. Say, can't this chuffer make his car move a wee peckle faster? Not unless we want to go back to court again for wearing holes in the speed limit said Gladden. Joel sighed rustily. Speaking to himself rather than to the reporter, he grumbled. I'd counted a whole heap on Treve's win all them ribbon-gew-gaws and such. Most likely the judging's been going on while I was in the hoose gal. Luck couldn't ever hand me out a hundred percent parcel, but they'd be sure to be a hole-punched into it somewheres. I suppose me and Treve has got to lay away them grand hopes of iron, like they was a pants of some dear dead friend, as the feller said. But if he could a won just a single ribbon, or a buck up, exhorted Gladden, who had caught not a distinct word of the mumbled soliloquy, but who saw the old man's first glow of relief was beginning to merge with his chronic gloom. Buck up, brother. Jail's better than a lot of dog shows I've covered. It's a funny thing. I've covered every line of sport from cockfighting to horse racing, and I've found more bad feelin' and less true sportsmanship in the dog game than in all the rest put together. More slams and knocks and poor losers and petty meanness than in every other form of sport combined. Finno continued to fidget, unheeding. Less to distract the oldster from his worries than to air his own views, the reporter went on. I've figured it out. I mean, the reason for the dog game's unsportsmanliness. And I think I've hit on the answer of it. It's because there are so many women in it. He paused, waiting for the exclamation which usually followed this pet speech of his finna was deaf to the harangue undeterred gladden resumed my wife says i'm a crank for thinking that but it's true in the old days we men were out fighting or fishing or hunting or doing other stunts that call for sportsmanship the women were at home taking care of the house and the kids during the centuries men learned to be sportsmen They learned to lose gracefully and to win modestly. They had to. They had thousands of years start on women in mastering sportsmanship. It wasn't till a very few years ago that women at large took any part at all in sport. They had to learn it from the beginning. Or rather, they still have to. Most of them haven't made much of a start at it yet. Uh Uh-huh grunted the unhearing Finno. Women don't take a general part in any forms of sport, even yet, pursued the reporter, except dog showing and tennis. At least, those are almost the only sports they've achieved any prominence in. And look at the result! The dog game is full of squabbles and backbiting and poor sportsmanship. But for the AKC's wise guidance, it would have gone to pot long ago. As for women in tennis, well, maybe you've read of the mallory Lingland mix-ups and others of the same sort. There couldn't be anything like that on the same scale in baseball or pugilism or boating, only in tennis, because women are prominent in it, and in dog breeding and showing. Not that I'm knocking women. It isn't their fault. Sportsmanship is a thing that takes hundreds of years to acquire. They've been at it for less than a quarter century. At that, they do 50 times better at it than any man could hope to in some purely feminine art he was just learning. And many of them are clean sportsmen, these women. Better than most men, but some few of them... Say, exploded Joel, you told me that armory wa'n't but two miles away. We've been riding in this open hearse for a... We'll be there in a minute now, said Gladden, swallowing the rest of his oration. It's just around that corner. Don't worry about your dog. He's all right. You won't even miss the collie Judgin', It won't begin for another half hour. Plenty of time to... Here we are, he finished, as the car swung a corner and stopped in front of the armory. Joel scarce waited for the machine to halt before scrambling out and making his way, at a run, up the steps and into the rackety building. Gladden followed as fast as he could, amusedly interested in the prospect of watching the grouchy old man when he should rejoin his beloved dog. This meeting was scheduled to be the most pathetic or the most humorous point in the story the reporter was planning. Would Fenno be as glum in that big moment as in the moment of his release from the cell? Glad hoped so. He hated to think that the keynote of the story was to be spoiled by Fenno, slopping babyishly over his restored collie chum. Down the crowded aisles sped Joel. Gladden close in his wake they reached the collie section There, finno came to a standstill with an abruptness that all but threw him off his balance and sent gladden colliding against him treves straw cluttered bench was empty it was the same bench with the same printed number tacked to it the same splintered pine footboard that fraser colt had kicked but Treve was no longer there. Gladden's trained, repertorial eye fixed itself upon another detail of the deserted bench, a fraction of a second earlier than did Finno's. The stout chain, affixed to the bench staple, was pulled to its full length and hung over the splintered top of the footboard. From the chain's snap hung a dog collar, broken. The collie's frantic plunges had at last made the decaying leather give way. A man, working over a dog on the adjoining bench, glanced up at sound of Gladden's ejaculation. He noticed the reporter and the hoar petrified old ranchman. He addressed them impersonally, though keeping a wary eye on Joel, as though fearing a fresh outbreak of assault and battery on the part of the newly released prisoner. "'He's gone,' announced the man. "'Kept lungin' and tugging at his chain all the time the cop was taking you out. "'Kept it up afterward, too. "'All at once, the collar bust, and he was off after you quicker than scat. "'I made a grab for him as he went past me, but I missed him. "'I thought it'd be kind of neighborly to catch him for you. "'When I got to the front door, though, he wasn't anywhere's in sight.' The doorman told me the dog had gone whizzin' out into the street like grease lightning. no sign of him anywheres. That must have been, let's see, that must have been about three or four minutes after you was took away by the cop. Er, I'm glad to see you back, he ended politely, as Finno did not cease from staring in blank despair at the empty bench and the riven collar. Gladden made as though to speak, but he had no time to form the well meaning words he was groping for. With a galvanic start, Joel wheeled and headed for the armory doorway. Gladden made after him, once more taxing his own young speed to keep close to the oldster. At the front steps he overhauled the ranchman. I'll phone the pound and then send word to the police to keep their eyes open for him said the reporter, genuinely touched by the ghastly face of his companion. And we'll advertise, too. Oh, we'll find him all right. You mustn't worry. Joel did not answer. Joel did not hear. All his days he had lived in the open spaces and far from the peopled haunts of life. To him there was terror in the sight of such crowds as now moved past the armory. There was double terror in the spectacle of the thick-built city which harbored the crowds. He had a born and reared countryman's distrust and dislike for populous streets. To him they held mystery, sinister mystery. Somewhere in these unfriendly and confusing and perilous streets, his beautiful collie chum was wandering in search of the master who was responsible for his misfortune was seeking Finno, wistfully and in vain, amid a million dangers. A score of whizzing automobiles flashing in and out in front of Joel, the clang of trolley cars and the onrush of a passing fire engine, all these were possible instruments of death to the ranch-raised Collie, who was straying out yonder, perplexed and aimless, hunting for the man who was his God. Treve had crowded into two brief minutes more agonizing excitement and drama than had been his in the past two years. He had met and attacked his olden tyrant. He had seen his master in life-and-death battle with that tyrant. Fifty-fold worse than all else, he had seen that cherished master overpowered and dragged away, and had had no power to fly to his assistance. Small wonder the frenzied dog had hurled himself with all his might against the collar that held him back from battling for his master's release. Then, at last, the collar had broken, leaving Treve free to follow and to rescue the captured man. Down the aisle he tore, and out through the gateway and down the steps— It was in this direction they had taken Finno. Treve had seen him go, and he ran by eye and not by scent. But when he reached the sidewalk and saw no trace of Joel, he reverted to first principles and dropped his muzzle earthward. Hundreds of people had traversed that stone pavement during the past minutes. But through the welter of scents, Treve's keen nostrils had scant difficulty in picking up Joel Finno's long familiar trail. Rapidly he followed it, but only for a yard or so. It led to the curb. There the policeman had bundled Joel into the car that was to bear him to the mile off station. There, of course, the trail ceased, and there the dog paused, wholly checkmated. After the fashion of his kind, he wasted no time in standing nonplussed. Instantly he set off at a hand gallop, nose to the ground, running in a wide circle in the hope that some arc of that circle might intersect Finno's lost trail. It was a ruse he had employed a hundred times in seeking for strayed sheep. But always his questing nostrils, at such times had inhaled the good, clean smell of earth and herb. Now they were filled with the stench of spilled gasoline and of grease. They were baffled by the passing of countless feet and by the numberless and nameless reeks of the city streets. Undeterred by the sickening strange odors, he continued his hunt, galloping in the broad circle he had begun. Head down, all his senses concentrated on the finding of the trail he sought. He was completing the circle when his nerves were jarred by a yelling voice just above him. There were menace and vexation in the voice. It was accompanied by a deafening blare. Instinctively, Treve shrank aside as he looked up to discern the dual noise's origin. The sidewise move saved him from a hideous and too common form of death, for, as he shifted his direction, a fast-going limousine's fender grazed his flank with such force as to send him rolling over and over in the filth of the asphalt roadway. The chauffeur, who had shouted and honked at him, yelled back a mouthful of oaths, but Treve did not hear them. Scrambling to his feet, Jarred and muddied and breathless, he was barely in time to dart out of the way of a motor truck that was bearing heavily down upon him. The wide street was alive with these engines of destruction, all seemingly bent upon his death. Bewilderment swept the luckless dog's brain. For an instant he stood, glancing pitiably to left and right— trying to find a pathway of escape from among the tangle of vehicles. Then the ever-ready wit of a trained collie came to his aid. This mid-street, assuredly, was no place for him. The sidewalk offered shelter, with no worse perils than the stream of passing pedestrians. Toward the sidewalk, he made his way. It is in such safety-seeking efforts that the average dog, in like conditions, becomes confused and is run over. Treve was not confused. With the skill and dexterity of a timber wolf, he sped in and out of the traffic, timing his every step to a nicety, enacting prodigies of time and distance gauging. In another few seconds he was on the sidewalk, nearly a block distant from the armory. The collie was panting, but not from fatigue. He was panting through excitement and nervousness. Light frost gathered on his lips and tongue. His rich coat was one smear of muck and mud. He was collarless. His aspect was ferocious and disreputable. People made plenty of room for him as he swung on down the sidewalk, nose to ground, still seeking Finno's lost trail. His dangerous circling of mid-street had failed to locate that trail. Collie-like, he knew there was no use in casting back over the same ground again. Henceforth, he must hunt on mere chance and with nothing to guide him. It was not a hopeful prospect. Finno had left the armory. That much, Treve's eyes and nose had told him. Finno had walked as far as the curbstone. There his trail had ended. Gallantly the collie kept on, along his aimless route, still sniffing the ground, pedestrians giving him the widest possible berth and turning to look back apprehensively at him. A man came briskly out of a store. So suddenly did he debouch onto the pavement that the dog had no room to avoid him. The man felt something collide glancingly with his knee and peered down. He beheld a huge collie, mud-coated and bleeding from a graze on the flank. Panic possessed the newcomer as he recalled the impact at his knee. By every law of fiction, this was a mad dog. The dog, of course, had bitten or at least tried to bite him in passing, which was also the way of fictional mad dogs. The man, like most of the world, was actuated by what he had read rather than by what he had learned or should have learned from real-life experience. Hence, he did the one regulation thing that was to be done under the circumstances. He screeched at the top of his lungs, Mad dog! Mad dog! A hundred persons stopped and stared apprehensively around them. They saw a chalk-faced man clutching at his left knee with one hand, while with the other he pointed dramatically at the harmless, trotting treve. Again and again he waked the echoes with that imbecile bellow of Mad Dog! Only a few times did he have a chance to warble the full cry as a solo. In a moment or so, voices from everywhere had caught up the shriek. The street re-echoed to the multiple howl. People ahead turned in fright as they heard it. Then they saw the mud-streaked and bloody collie trotting in their direction, and they scattered squawkingly to the refuge of shop doors or parked cars. Two local newspapers, next day, printed strong editorials on the menace of allowing dogs to roam, unmuzzled, in the city. Treve was unaware of the furor he was creating, for all he knew, this sort of bedlam might be an ordinary phase of street life. In any event, it was no concern of his, and he padded unconcernedly on, still sniffing in vain for his lost master's footsteps. His progress received a rude check, as a sharper note mingled with the looser volume of his pursuer's yells, Some born idiot had drawn a pistol and had opened fire on him. A bullet spatted the stone pavement just in front of him, a pin-tip of the scattered lead stinging his sensitive nose. Treves stopped and looked back in mild wonder. Then, for the first time, he realized that everybody in the world was racing along at his heels, "'waving umbrellas or canes or any other weapon. "'One youth had even snatched up a half-full tin ash can "'and was brandishing it above his head "'while a halo of blown ashes sifted lovingly down upon him "'and blew into the eyes of those nearest him. "'The pistol-wielder, luckily for Treve, "'chanced just then to be nearest the can-brandisher. "'He halted and took aim at the momentarily moveless dog.' Providence sent an eddying breeze from heaven, which gathered up a spoonful of ashes from the tilted can, and whirled them blindingly into the marksman's eye. The bullet sped skyward. A policeman, then another, appeared from nowhere and joined the chase. It dawned on Treve, belatedly, that it was a chase, and that he was its quarry. With no fear, but with a strong determination not to let these people catch him and thus prevent him from continuing his search of Finno, the dog quickened his swinging wolf-trot into a hand-gallop. One of the policemen was stopping at every third jump to rap for reinforcements. In response to these raps and to the clamor of the pursuit, A blue coat rounded a corner on the run just in front of Treve. He made a noteworthy effort to brain the collie with his club. Treve saw the blow coming, and he dodged it with perfect ease. Then, diving between the policeman's threateningly outstretched legs and upsetting him, the dog continued on his way, though at a faster pace. Passers-by in front gave him a world of room. Pausing only at street crossings to avoid passing motors, he fled at a mile-eating run, leaving the chase far behind. He was hot and worried and cruelly thirsty, yet the sound of pursuit warned him not to slacken pace. At last this sound grew fainter, for no running man can hope to keep within hailing distance of a running collie. Treve slackened speed. He glanced around him. The houses had grown few and straggling. He was on the compact little city's outskirts. Ahead of him arose green foothills. Toward them he bent his pavement-bruised feet. Assuredly, there was no sense in trying to find Joel Finno in that hell of unfriendly humans behind him. There was no trace of the old man. And Treve did what the wisest of lost collies usually do. He headed for home. On he went until he had breasted the nearest green slope of the ridge which divided the fertile valley from the desert beyond. Almost at the summit he found a little trickle of water from a hilltop spring not yet dried by the approaching summer. There he paused and drank long and greedily. His thirst assuaged, he stretched himself and clambered to the crest of the ridge. Pausing again, he lifted aloft his dainty muzzle and sniffed. For perhaps two minutes he stood thus, testing the breeze with quick, comprehensive intakes of breath. From side to side he moved his head and forequarters until presently he stood still, verifying the hint the air had brought him. Then, without a shadow of indecision in mind or in gait, he set off down the desertward side of the ridge. He knew the course he must take. If, perhaps, this action of treves be scoffed at, as nature faking, there are a dozen authentic cases of the sort— How a collie can get his direction in the way just described is past human knowledge, but that such direction is gotten in that way cannot be denied. Thus it was that the great dog began his hundred-mile homeward journey across unknown land and guided solely by his mysterious sixth sense. Down the hill he went never breaking that deceptively rapid, choppy wolf-trot of his. In another half-hour his feet had left the springy turf and ridges of the hill and were pattering across the prickling gray sands of the desert. On he went, while the sun dipped past the meridian, on into sweltering afternoon. Here was no chance for thirst-quenching, no chance for adequate shade, no chance for anything but grim endurance. The collie's pink tongue lolled far out. His eyes were bloodshot from sand and from heat. The mud on his coat had caked and dried, as had the blood from the graze on his flank. He was suffering from thirst, from fatigue, from reaction, but he kept on. At sunset he had his first alleviation of discomfort. Trotting exhaustedly over the top of a gray sand dune, he saw at its base, in front of him, a black-and-white animal about the size of a cat. The animal saw and heard him, yet it made no hurry to get out of his way. Skunks know from experience that few larger animals willingly take a chance of attacking them. But Treve was as hungry as he was thirsty— All day he had been on the move, and he had eaten nothing. With express train speed, he dashed downward at this possible dinner. The skunk wheeled, bracing its four feet firmly in the sand, tail aloft. But this was not the collie's first encounter with such opponents. Ten feet from the tensely waiting skunk, Treve leaped high in the air and far to the left, Then, before the skunk could get opportunity to brace itself a second time, he veered as rapidly to the right and slashed as he sprang. The skunk lay lifeless at his feet, its back broken, and Treve feasted in luxurious comfort. An hour later he came to the railroad track. Here, it seemed, was surcease for his aching pads from the teasing desert sands, Gladly he trotted along the ties in the exact middle of the track. But after the first mile, the bite of cinders on his sore feet grew more unbearable than were the sand grains, and he shifted from track to right-of-way. Not five minutes later, the Limited came thundering past, shaking the earth and almost knocking him down by the suction of its nearby passage. Truly, those foot-cutting cinders had done Treve a good turn by driving him from between the steel rails and out of the path of annihilation. It was wolf instinct that guarded him from his next mortal danger. In early dusk, he was padding wearily along the sage-sprinkled gray plain when something buzzed like fifty wind-blown telegraph wires from beneath a sagebrush directly in front of him. There was no time to dodge. Without stopping to plan his own action, he gathered his tired muscles and leaped, clearing the two-foot brush with several inches to spare. So instant quick had been the move that the rattlesnake beneath the bush missed him by a clean six inches as it struck at his approaching bulk. The great white desert stars came out in a black velvet sky. The torrid heat of day merged into a dampish chill, which helped to assuage the collie's burning thirst. On he stumbled. Then his worn-out frame took a new brace. From far off, the night wind brought him the craved scent of running water, the Dos Hermanos River. It was two nights later when Joel Finno came home to the ranch, after raking the city of La Serra hysterically with a fine-tooth comb for his lost dog, after posting deliriously exorbitant rewards whose payment would have bankrupt him. He halted the wheezy car at the gate and stumped up the walk. The dazed old man's spirit was dead within him. He hoped Royce Mack might not yet have gotten back from Omaha. He himself wanted to gather up some money and some clean clothes before returning to La Serra to continue the hopeless hunt. As he started up the walk, something furry and cyclonic burst out of the house, dashed limpingly down the walk to meet him, and flung itself at his breast barking ecstatic welcome to the Wanderer. Treve, gasped the unbelieving Finno chokingly. Oh, oh, Treevy. That was all, but he gathered the gaily dancing collie into his arms in a bear hug that well-nigh crushed the victim's ribs. The man's heart seemed likely to burst from sheer joy and relief. He wanted to dance, or else to pray. He was not sure which. Then, of a sudden, he straightened himself and drew a long breath. Out onto the porch from the living room, his partner, Royce Mack, was sauntering. "'Hello,' hailed Royce. "'You've been to Santa Clara,' Tony says.' Treve must have gone on a rampage while we were both away. When I got back this morning he was lying at the door all in, cut and muddy and lame and don't waste breath gassin' about the measly cur, rasped Finno, with all his wonted grouchiness as he fended off Treve's welcoming advances in much show of disgust. Get busy and tell me what prices you got for them sheep down to Omaha. A businessman's got no time to jabber dog talk when there's prices to be quoted. Say, retorted Royce, nettled, if I hated anything as much as you hate that grand collie of ours, I'd just bite myself and die of hydrophobia. Isn't there any heart in you for a dog like that? No grunted Joel. There ain't. Dogs is pests, and this dog is a peskiest of the lot. But in the darkness, he was furtively drawing a hoarded lump of sugar from his pocket and slipping it to the playfully eager treve. End of Chapter 6